0: Mark ten seventeen 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Ordinary Christianity is radical Christianity. The Roman historian Tacticus described Emperor Nero's persecutions of Christians this way. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set to fire, or when the day waned, their heads severed and burned as evening lights for his garden parties. You know, Jesus made the cost of discipleship pretty clear when in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christian is a label truly worn only by those willing to light Nero's garden parties with their severed heads. There is no such thing as casual, one-hour-a-week Christianity. Jesus must be everything to you, or he will be nothing for you. He's not an appendage or an accessory to life. He is life. And eternal life requires singular devotion to Jesus. Only those who become like needy, dependent children can inherit this life. I mean, Jesus is willing to save anyone who loves Him above all else. But He will save no one devoted to anything else. Our main idea of the text this morning is that citizenship in the kingdom of God requires singular devotion to Jesus. Singular citizenship in the kingdom of God, requires a unique, singular devotion to Jesus. An application I, I want you to make to your life this week is to be devoted to him. As we work through the text, we're going to learn that Jesus gives himself up so that true disciples can give themselves up, experience the impossible, and take hold of of his promises. That's actually going to be our outline this morning. True disciples give themselves up, experience the impossible and take hold of the promise. Let's pray together. Father, make us hungry for you this morning. Make us thirsty. Meet us here. We need more of you. Fill us with your holy spirit. Cut us where we need to be cut. Heal us where we need to be healed. Let your word do its work. Amen. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus who's setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When we put Mark's account of this event together with Matthew and Luke's account, we find out that this man is both rich and young and I just draw the conclusion that he's good-looking, too, because it's hard to be both rich and young and not be good-looking, right? So from here on out, I'm just going to name him because rich young ruler is a mouthful. I'm going to call him Rich, all right? Makes sense to me. So Rich comes running up to Jesus, and uh, he asks life's most important question. He asks, how do I get eternal life? How do I enter the kingdom of God? Of God, that's the eternal life, kingdom of God, the gift of life, the life of God, having treasure in heaven, enjoying the age to come. All these things refer to the same thing, and that's life together with God. Rich wants to know how he can have fellowship with God forever. Notice, though, that his question is fundamentally flawed. Look look at how he frames his question. says, what must, here it is, I do, to inherit eternal life. You see, his question assumes that there is something that he can do to earn or merit eternal life. He thinks that peace with God is something you work for and can obtain. But as he will soon learn, the kingdom is a gift that can only be received by becoming needy like a child. Something that's received. When one follows Jesus, it's important to note that Mark here is contrasting the children that were coming to Jesus. These are the ones that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They have nothing to offer. They just receive with the rich young ruler who's going to have all these good deeds, all these merits. But he would be one that's outside of the kingdom. Whereas those that make themselves like children are in the kingdom. See the contrast. You know, Christianity is the only Religion that makes your salvation dependent not on what has been done, that you've done on your own, but what has been done for you. It's the only religion that does that. It's the only religion that says done, it's done, receive it, instead of do and get. Christianity is a religion of done. The gospel announces what's been done for you, not what you have to do. I think that's easy for us to forget or to miss think it's especially easy as Americans. We often view ourselves as independent and generally good people. In fact, we pride ourselves on achievement, don't we? I can't believe I decided to use this as an illustration, but as I was thinking about this this week, an old song from the 90s came into my head. Many of you probably have never heard it, uh, but it was from a group called Destiny's Child, and uh, the, here are some of the lyrics in the song. It goes like this, the shoes on my feet I've bought them. The clothes I'm wearing, I bought them. The rock I'm rocking, I bought them. Why? Because I depend on me. If you wanted the watch you're wearing, I'll buy it. The house I live in, I bought it. The car I'm driving, I bought it. I depend on me. I depend on me. See, the song celebrates and captures a little bit of the American ideal, doesn't it? Self-sufficiency self-made people free from any outside authority of control independent i think independence might be the highest virtue in our country which is why why the gospel is so hard for so many to swallow because we try to apply our individualistic ideals to absolutely everything and the gospel says that won't work If you try to get to heaven by your independence, game over. Not going to work. You're going to find your life unsatisfying and yourself wanting. If you try to depend on yourself to find true, deep satisfaction, to find your way to heaven, you will soon find yourself in hell. Figuratively now, Because no one ever lives up even to their own rules and circumstances. And literally later, when the judgment comes. The kingdom is only entered into by those who receive it like children and depend on Jesus' work rather than their own. We do have to give Rich some credit here though, right? His question, I think, is still a good one even though he frames it the wrong way. Look at how he asks it, too. Runs up to Jesus, something rich people didn't do because it was considered something that rich people didn't do. I mean, I don't know that they run a whole lot now, but but rich people didn't run, so this is something that is humbling of himself. And then he goes further, and he kneels down before Jesus. And so he's come to the right person, he's come with the right posture, and he's asking the right question. I kind of like him. I mean, don't you, at first blush? Humble guy. You know, he's come to the right guy, probably good-looking, seems like an upstanding citizen, ruler of the synagogue. I, think, I, think I picture it in contemporary terms a little bit. Uh, like, imagine a Christian group is out at a park having a picnic, and a likable young rich guy rolls up in his Lamborghini, comes out, comes up to the pastor in the group and says, Hey, how can I inherit eternal life? I want to be a part of your church. What, what do you think would happen? in our culture we assume that pastor would share the gospel with him really really quick, baptize him make sure there was a Jesus fisher on the back of his Lamborghini before he pulled away and that he was tithing before it was all said and done right by the way if you're rich, welcome to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, we love you here that's not what happens here though right look, look at what Jesus does Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, that's rich, said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So Jesus said, Let me talk to your mom about that see no, he, he he turns rich here towards the law, right? So that he might uh, see his need for a savior. But rich has forgotten to set his DVR to record the Sermon on the Mount, and so he still thinks that the law is pretty easy to keep. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does there is he's explaining to everybody that the law is actually way way harder to keep than we ever thought. No one can keep it, in fact. He says, you you think that you keep the sixth commandment by not killing anybody, but I tell you, if you've looked with anger at someone, you've committed murder in your heart. Murderer, lawbreaker, guilty, condemned. You think that if you haven't had sex outside of your own marriage that you're keeping the seventh commandment? Ha! If you've ever looked With anybody, at anybody, with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with them. Adulterer. The law is much harder to keep than you ever thought. You cannot keep it on your own. With man, this is impossible. Anyhow, Rich, like many Jews at the time, had kept the laws according to the way that they thought they should be kept. And he thinks that he is a law keeper. And so he says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Honestly, I think that he is just, just powerfully self-deceived, like many of us. I bet if I asked you, and I'm not asking, so don't raise your hands here, all right? It could be embarrassing for you. I bet if I asked you how many of you thought that you were generally good people, that you were generally a good person, think that if you were being honest, almost every hand in the room would go up. Generally, I think I'm a good person person but if we continue to be honest with ourselves we like rich will find that in spite of our efforts and our accomplishments that there will remain an emptiness an insecurity and a doubt because we'll never know how good is good enough how good is good enough to be called good where where do we get our definition from I think most of us likely think of good as being better than the next person, or finding somebody that does things a little bit more wrong than we do, or maybe even trying to do the right thing most of the time. Maybe more prevalent in our culture would be that doing good just means being true to yourself. I think Rich fits into these categories. Nice Jewish boy, he's tried and succeeded in some measure. To do the right thing rich if, if you asked him are you a good person i think he would tell you yeah <laughs> i think I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy i just there's something missing and that's why he's coming to jesus here and i do want to note, by the world's standards and by all accounts and appearances rich is right he's a pretty good person but you see there's a flaw in his definition of good Which is why Jesus points it out in verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Jesus says this to to give him a kind of preview of what is about to come. And he's also correcting his, his definition of good. He's saying no one's good but God. God is the standard of goodness. It's perfect, blemishless, holiness, it's sinless, perfection if you are falling short of sinless perfection you are not good only god is good in the same way the law will reveal no one can keep the law perfectly you are not good you need a savior jesus is about to show rich how he has deceived himself he's going to expose the true posture of this young man's heart I do love the irony of the situation here, too. Rich's proclamation, it's actually true of Jesus, right? Good teacher is a title that fits Jesus because he's God. However, Rich should not call Jesus good teacher until he's ready to follow Jesus as his one true God. And as we'll see, he's not there yet. So Jesus turns him towards the law to show him his own moral deficiency but real, rich under the spell of his own self-deception claims that he's already kept it. And so Jesus doesn't, he doesn't scream liar! Doesn't do that here. Look what he does. Looks at him with loving compassion. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. He speaks words that he knows will cut the young man to the quick. You lack one thing Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 22, we see Rich's self deception melt away as he's confronted with the true state of his heart. He's kept all the rules, but he doesn't love or depend on God. He's been in church every Sunday, he prays every night, but he doesn't love or depend on God. See, Rich has put his faith and his trust in his wealth and accomplishments. His functioning Savior, Is his stuff and himself thinks that his good works and his wealth, that's where he's building his identity, his meaning of life. That's where he's looking for his satisfaction. Jesus is saying to him, Rich, I I want you to imagine life without money. I want you to imagine all of it gone, no inheritance. Inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions, all of it gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? Rich goes away stunned and sad. He can't live like that. He can't believe the demands of Jesus. Jesus demands that the rich sell everything He has and give to the poor. I do want to point out, though, that's not that specific application of Jesus' Word here is not a prescription for all Christians. What I mean is, is you're allowed to have stuff, right? Otherwise, most of us would not be wearing clothing this morning or, or have, have like vehicles that we drove here. It's not for all Christians, it's, it's for rich right here. And I think we also know this because Christians in the early church and throughout history have owned things. Jesus and his disciples owned things. And, and I'm sure you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? He, wee little man was he, goes up in the tree. Uh, I don't know how the rest of the song goes. Uh, but uh, Jesus says, Zach, come down from there. Uh, we're going to have dinner. I'm crashing at your place. It's going to be awesome. And when Zacchaeus gets down, he sells half of everything that he has. Not all of it, just half. And this is what Jesus says to him in verse 9 of Luke 19. Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus isn't about the dollar amount, he's about the heart. The particular command of Jesus puts on the, the particular command that Jesus puts on rich, it's not for everyone, but the principle is. And it always has been. I mean, we read the principle in Exodus 20, verse 3, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's really simple. God will not share His glory with another. He demands all of you. Everything. He says the same thing to you that He said to Rich. You must repent of your idols and trust in Me. Whether you've built your sense of worth your identity, on money, image, career, family, social status, intelligence, or being an independent, self-made, generally good person. Whatever it is that you have made your source of meaning, you must exchange it so that Jesus is your source of meaning, your source of life, your source of satisfaction. When Jesus called rich... To give up his money, the ruler started to grieve. Because money for him was what the Father is for Jesus. Money was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. Jesus demands that those who would follow him give themselves up so that he might make them new. Jesus requires that you give up your independence and your self-dependence. He requires that you submit to his lordship and depend on his work. He requires you give up your old self, your old identity, and receive the new identity built on him. In the Harry Potter books, there's a a mirror that remains hidden deep within the school because of its dangerous power. What's special about this mirror is that it shows you the thing that your heart most desires. And so when when, uh, one of the characters looks into the mirror, he sees himself being celebrated, holding trophies, people around him applauding, ticker tape parade. He has this great social status because of his athletic achievement. And when Harry looks into the mirror, he sees himself with his parents, who died when he was very, very young. You see, the mirror is dangerous because all those who gaze into it eventually end up spending all of their time sitting in front of the mirror, watching. It's a little bit like the story in Greek mythology of narcissists, if you remember Narcissus, uh, he became obsessed with his own reflection when he saw it in some water, and then he sat there and stared at himself until he died. Those that, that look into the mirror tend to become a lot like Narcissus, They sit there and stare. So close your eyes for a minute. Imagine yourself sitting before this, this magic mirror, What do you see when you look into it? Do you see money? Cars? A relationship? Family? Intellectual or athletic achievement? A new job? A house? Whatever it is that you see, it's what Jesus is calling you to stop worshiping. Whatever you desire most, whatever grips your heart, is your God. And Jesus will not share your heart with another. You can open your eyes. Jesus requires that you give up that thing that you are building your identity on. That you give up your very self and depend on Him. Jesus wants you to see Him when you look in the mirror. And I would suggest that the person that sees Jesus in the mirror wouldn't find themselves stuck in front of it. Because the person that desires Jesus above all else already knows him as Savior. And so it would be a reality. What do you see when you look in the magic mirror? Do you see Jesus? Demands that those who would follow and give themselves up to his grace so that he might make them new. I mean, Rich, he had everything, wealth, power, popularity, influence, but he lacked the most important thing. One thing you lack, Jesus. So what must someone do to inherit eternal life? Approach God like a needy child, asking for his grace and forsaking old identities and old idols, dependent on nothing and no one but Jesus. Jesus. Citizenship in the kingdom of God requires singular devotion to Jesus. Note, too, that according to many approaches to evangelism, Jesus would have been pigeonholed as a poor evangelist, right? He would have failed the test. He basically hindered this guy from coming to faith. I mean, he, the guy's kneeling and asking him. Somebody might go, Jesus, why didn't you you tell him, here, pray the sinner's prayer? Because easy believism is fraudulent. It's bankrupt. Because there's no such thing as casual Christianity. Because Jesus must be everything to you or he will be nothing for you. Not an appendage or an accessory to life. He is life. The Christian label is truly worn only by those that are willing to light Nero's garden parties with their severed heads funny jesus tells us don't hinder those that come like children that come needy the poor but hinder those that come and think they already have everything they need hinder the self-righteous the self-dependent the tax collector that admits his helpless state he has the kingdom the pharisee who trusts in himself does not see the goal of evangelism is not converts but to share the gospel Biblical evangelism is stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking the truth in love and trusting God for the results. It's the Spirit who gives life to the dead, not us. And we defame Christ and damage His body when we, because of our worldly ideas of success, focus our energies on getting as many as we can to pray a sinner's prayer without having them count the cost. Nominal, casual Christianity, is, it's just another powerless religion. Jesus does not settle for half hearted converts, but demands whole hearted disciples that give themselves up to his lordship. Christians are those that have given up themselves and experience the impossible. I say experience the impossible because true disciples know that their conversion was a miracle. There's nothing natural about it which we're about to see. Let's be fair though, Jesus' demand that we give up our idols and love him above all else, it's it's a big ask. It's a hard requirement, such a hard requirement that even the disciples are shocked. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus isn't condemning wealth here. It's not a summons to asceticism or or monkish living. The monkish monk still needs Jesus. The point is that money, like any idol, breeds confidence in oneself. It has an addictive quality to it. To put it simply, lots of money makes it really, really easy to become self-satisfied and prideful. I mean, it's not coincidence that for every one time Jesus warns about building our lives on sex and romance, he warns us ten times about money. It's dangerous. The unique allure of money seduces us with its siren sounds. Money speaks to us and promises happiness and satisfaction makes promises that it cannot keep. Money lies. Those who are wealthy must continually wage war against any desire to idolize money. Disciples are amazed because they can't believe what they are hearing, and so Jesus continues, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How many of you, I have to ask, how many of you have ever heard the explanation of this text that there's a gate in Jerusalem that's really small and to get through it, uh, you just had to unload your camel and the camel could kneel down and squeeze on through the gate. He could get through, but it's a really small gate. Have you heard that? Yeah, I've heard it lots of times too. It's wrong. It's just completely wrong interpretation. Jesus is making a, a, a statement of hyperbole, that, and he's doing it on purpose. He wants to say it's impossible. The, the gate thing actually comes from, uh, it was easy to confuse earlier on, because they actually built a gate and called it the eye of the needle, but they called it that after Jesus story because it was built in the ninth century, right? Hundreds of years after Jesus. So that's, that's not how we should understand this text, that it's just really hard for a rich person to get into heaven. But if they humble themselves, then they can get in. That's not the meaning here. Jesus is saying it's impossible for a rich person to get into heaven. We might want to ask why. And The purpose is, is that because the disciples are really surprised. Because in Jewish thought, wealth and the blessing of God were, they were, that riches were seen as evidence of God's favor, right? If you had a lot of stuff, that meant you were doing life right. Which is why when Job loses all his friends and all his stuff, they tell him it must be because he sinned and he needs to repent, even though Job was sinless. Jesus is correcting that false theology, saying wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing, but in fact, it could be a great barrier to the one thing necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Helpless, childlike trust in Jesus. So friends, hear the warning here, because it's not just for the rich. Jesus is saying, the best of you, those that you think are the very best, they are not making it into heaven. The vi- those that you think have the best chance of getting into heaven, they can't squeeze through the, the, a camel through the eye of a needle. They can't get in. And the disciples go, if they can't get in, then who? How can we be saved? That's what their response is, actually, right? They say, who then can be saved if not this guy? And Jesus says, no one. So hear his warning. This warning is for you. As Americans, we are far wealthier than any other people at any other place in any other time in all of history. This is for you. You are the richest people that have ever lived. Beware of the power of money to separate you from God. Do not let your possessions possess you. So we should ask, let's take a test. How how do you know that money has become more than just money to you? I think two, two things happen. Here are the signs. One, money has become more than just money to you if you cannot give large amounts of it away. When was the last time you gave a large amount of money away? Two, money has become more than just money to you if you get scared if you might have less of it than you are accustomed to having. Are you generous? Do you look to money for your security and safety or to Christ? Beware of the love of money. Wealth and love of money and anything else that causes disciples to forget their poverty, their childlikeness before God. It's the camel before the eye of a needle. It will make entering the kingdom of God impossible. The can't get in and you know that nobody can. Salvation seems impossible. And then we come to verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it's impossible. You're right. If men left to their own efforts, their own righteousness, their own abilities, they will never enter the kingdom. No man can be saved. Because no one except for God is truly good. And then Jesus comes in here and throws in what some have called a, a beautiful but of the Bible. Oh, I don't know why it always stuck with me. Somebody said it and it makes me, every time I see a but God in the Bible, it makes me really remember it. This is, this is a but God. Jesus says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What, what is he getting at here? Jesus is saying that men and women can be saved out of their impossible, sinful, bad situation only by a miracle of god only by receiving his grace and the way that we experience the impossible the way you receive his grace is by giving up your old self your old identity which is forged on powerless idols and accepting a new identity built on jesus christ one thing you lack give up that old idol and follow me receive the kingdom and Jesus, I always want to point this out, he doesn't ask us to do anything he's not willing to do himself. Look back at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Jesus looks at rich, and he loves him. It's the only time in the Gospels where Jesus, it's said that Jesus looks at someone and loves them. Told you he was good looking. Why? I think it's because Jesus can relate to him. And Jesus loves all people, but I think he can really relate to this rich young man. Because he knows how hard it is to leave everything. Jesus is at this point in his early 30s. He too is a rich young man, far richer than anyone can ever imagine. He's lived in the incomprehensible glory, wealth, love, and joy in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity. He's already left that wealth behind him to come to earth. Still, Jesus will give up more. He's on his way to the cross to plunge himself into a deeper poverty than anyone else has ever or will ever know. On the cross, Jesus, the truly good God-man, gave up all his claims and rights and privileges for you. He gave up shouts of Hosanna for shouts of crucify him. He gave up palm leaves for whips. He gave up royal robes for public nakedness. He gave up fine jewelry for nails in his hands. He gave up a coronation with a crown of gold for a coronation with a crown of thorns. He gave up a banquet to have his body broken. He gave up being anointed with oil to be soaked in his own blood. He gave up peace to absorb wrath. He gave up joy for sorrow. He gave up himself for you. He gave His life for your life. Jesus, the ultimate rich young ruler, has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now all you have to do to experience this impossible salvation is to give up yourself and follow Him. I say follow Him in the present tense because He didn't stay dead. No, no. He gave up death and raised to life. He gave up the grave to sit on the throne at God's side. Jesus raises from the dead in order to prove the acceptability of His sacrifice, the truth of His Word, and His power to save. He is mighty to save. He is the first fruit of the new creation. Jesus gives up Himself so that we can give up ourselves and experience the impossible being adopted as children into His family. Entering the kingdom of God means leaving behind the world, having Jesus as your treasure and taking hold of the promises. Verse 28, Peter began to say to Him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Jesus says the sacrifices of Peter and of all the disciples in the name of Christ will be rewarded a hundred times as much now in this world and with eternal life in the world to come. The remarkable thing about the list of verse 29 is that our most essential natural network of relationships and allegiances, homes, families, fields, must be forsaken for the scandalous call of Christ, takes priority over everything. It requires the severing of old allegiances. One cannot follow Jesus with one's former baggage. One must give up his nets and another his riches. Ironically, however, one will receive a hundred times what one forsook for Christ's sake. Jesus is again here reminding us of how he has redefined family and redefined our priorities. If you remember all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, he's teaching. We've gone over it a few times now. He's inside teaching a bunch of people around. His family can't get in. His mother and brothers, I think, are looking for him. And somebody says, hey, they're looking for you. It's expected in that culture that he would go out. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? It's Those that do the will of God. You all that are following me are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters my children. Jesus is saying, if you have left biological brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, if you've left lands and homes to follow me, then by following me, you've become part of my people, the church. You inherit now the community of saints. Everyone adopted by Christ is your mother or father or sister or brother or child. You will find welcome in the homes and lands of other believers. Friends, the church is a tremendous blessing. Enjoy it. Go to one another's houses. Enjoy one another's children. Or suffer one another's children, right? Jesus says in the King James, suffer the children to come to me. Some of y'all have been suffering my child this morning with his mom out of town. It's a tremendous blessing. Enjoy the community you have here. I think many of us don't feel the glory of this passage because we have not given up much to follow Jesus. And we're not willing to give up enough to taste the sweetness of fellowship with His people. Take hold of the promise. Plug in. Belong here. Enjoy community. I also think that Jesus means for this text to have a double meaning. I think he means for us to recognize the blessing of fellowship with his people but i also think that he means that he himself makes up for every loss john piper puts it this way if you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present christ if you give up the warm friendship of a brother you get back 100 times the warmth and friendship of a brother from christ If you give up the sense of at homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Jesus is saying, I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not ever be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. That's how the missionary Hudson Taylor understood this, where after 50 years of missionary work in China, he said, I never made a sacrifice. Never made a sacrifice. Notice in verse 30, one of the blessings is with persecutions. It's an odd sort of thing to include in a list of blessings, but I think it strikes a sobering note of realism. To be a member of Jesus' kingdom means to share in all that is his, including suffering on his behalf. I want to bring in a cross-reference here. from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it's written this way in the New Living Translation. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. The ESV is a little bit more poetic. It says it this way, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Even when we suffer, we're able to say with Hudson Taylor, I never made a sacrifice, because the joy of knowing Jesus is so great that even suffering becomes a blessing, because it makes us more like him. Suffering that results from faithfulness to the gospel is not a sign of divine abandonment or disfavor, but an inevitable byproduct of faith. To the world who does not know Christ, it may seem as if we are lost and that we are last. We will seem foolish, but God does not evaluate things the same way fallen humanity does. Those who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes. But those who have Christ as first and themselves as last in their own eyes will be rewarded as first. Have you made yourself the last and the least, poor and needy, as a child, that you might receive the kingdom of heaven? Is Jesus your deepest and strongest desire? Citizenship in the kingdom of God requires singular devotion to Jesus. What do you need to give up so that you can follow him with your whole heart? Jesus gave up himself so true disciples can give up themselves, experience the impossible, and take hold of the promise. Will you give yourself to Jesus? Will you be adopted into his family? Will you receive the kingdom and inherit the promise of eternal life? Will you see Jesus in the mirror? Do you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for your word and the amount of wealth that is available to us in it. Lord, we thank you that your word satisfies us as bread and water and that it gives life. We pray that you would thrill our hearts with your gospel once more this morning and exhort us on. Help us to encourage one another in the faith, sort us on to good deeds in life, to becoming in practice what you've declared us to be in truth, your children, heirs to the kingdom of heaven. This is true richness.